Jesus comes to us and teaches in parables. We're about to spend some time in parables for a little while here, so let's understand what first what parables are not. Parables are not Zen master stories where one finds eternity in a grain of rice. Parables are not wisdom sayings to help you find your inner spark of divinity. They aren't fables. They're not here to teach you that slow and steady win the race. Uh, Nor are they fairy tales to teach you that kindly-looking folks may have wolfish insides. They are not sermons, at least most sermons I encounter. There's no real clarity to them. More questions are provoked than answers, more possibilities than sermon points. And when people ask Jesus why he speaks this way, he quotes Isaiah. So they will hear and hear and not understand. They will look and look and not see. The point of parables, apparently, is that we do not get the point. So I have heard sermons without a discernible point, but I don't think it's the preacher's intent when that happens. C.H. Dodd was a biblical scholar who uh, recommended that when you come into a parable and you find it flatly interpreted for you, when the answer is given, run, do not walk away from the explanation. And he doesn't just feel this way, in case, in case you're wondering. He says, look, take a look at the Greek for, this, uh, for the explanation that is given and the, the part of the parable that is the explanation. Look at the one that we encountered today. If you do, those couple of verses that are comprised of some Greek words that are not used anywhere else in Matthew, and they're also not used anywhere else in the Synoptic Gospels. The language just doesn't fit. So likely what he guesses, and I think is quite true, is that these interpretations These teachings, uh, the flattening out, rose up around the original parable itself that was given by Jesus. Because if there is one thing we crave, it is answers. Definition. True and false. Yes and no. Tell me exactly what this equates to. I've heard this parable interpreted other ways. uh, Mostly when I wasn't an Episcopalian from the mouth of preachers who thought it most effective to terrify you into a loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who thought that if they scared you enough, you might run straight into Jesus' waiting arms. Are you rocky soil? Are you thorny soil? And it did terrify me then. But all the while, a little voice was saying, I wonder if anyone else has ever held soil responsible for its own condition. Like, I might go into my driveway and scatter seed and curse the packed gravel for its lack of nutrients for my radishes. So we'll leave those interpretations there. Because I think the point that this misses is that this is not a parable of the soils. It's the parable of the sower. Parables glance off, illuminate the character of God. They are the response to the question, what is God like? A sower went out to sow, and as he went, he scattered seed everywhere. 
And this sower, at best, is an unconventional sower. In the standards of our world, in the standards of my own carefully mapped by square foot garden, he is a wasteful sower. Throws seeds just everywhere. You get some seeds, you get some seeds, you get some seeds. The first fall along the road and the birds eat it up, which maybe isn't so bad. I throw some seeds to the birds. Seed feeds the birds and it flies away and eventually deposits it on different soil. Might be good soil. Might explain the sudden appearance of volunteer zinnias in my front yard. Flung to the wind, growth, unseen by the sower, but a gift to others somewhere else. At the least, perhaps not wasted. Some of the seed fell in rocky soil and sprang up quickly, but it had no depth. I've just finished a reread of Howard's End by Ian Forrester, second book, best book of all time. And I was, I'm always stung by the line, he who drinks of oblivion for one day shortens the stature of his soul. One day. I mean, practically our entire world, I know entire lives that are just one of movements, distraction, crises, refugees, Hits of oblivion to keep away the panic and emptiness. The seed sprouts and withers, like relationships, with roots rarely more than an inch deep. Forster writes that perhaps some future happier generation will look back on ours with wonder that we regressed back into a nomadic society, that we had possessions but they were not enough to root us into place. Some of the seed fell among thorns and grew up, but was eventually choked out. The fresh-eyed optimism of youth withering in the vines of cynicism, charity choked by materialism, and most of these vines probably can't even be helped. The tendrils of depression and anxiety always creeping in, the breaking of trust that cannot be regained, the hope of changing the world slowly punctured by the thorns of oppression and their intractable reality. It's like someone else's herbicide drifting to kill your whole field of beans, this randomness of violence that descends on the innocent and the guilty. And then some of it falls on good soil, right into place. The seed grows and the roots expand and spindly arms grow strong enough to bear fruit, creating a harvest of 30, 60, even 100-fold. Seems like a miracle for all the planning that's gone into this. So what is God like? What is the kingdom like? We had a discussion about uh, predestination this past week at our young adults pub theology group. And predestination is a bit repugnant to our self-made man society. Almost, well, everyone in the room initially argued on the side of free will. But we started to put it into the context of nature versus nurture. 
can the argument get a little more nuanced? Can you help the soil you're given? Now, uh, pondering the finer points of predestination is not my intent, particularly this late in the sermon. But consider this. The beauty of the parable is that the soil is never changed, never worked, never tilled. It is the art of fitting the seed, the life of the spirit, the life of the soul, into the natural contours of one's life that makes us receptive to God. Call it provenient grace, if you like. In the parables, God is never like a sound businessman or a practical planner or an industrialist bent on exploiting as much arable ground as possible with the most efficiency possible. God is a sower, and a not very good one, who flings seed extravagantly on all of the soils of your life, of all of our lives, trusting it to bear fruit as it will. The seed of grace in this story seems endless, probably because it is. Who knows what it may yield? When Jesus chooses this image of the sower, it's an old one, it's not an original He's hearkening back here hundreds of years, all the way back to the prophet Isaiah again, who said, As the rain and snow fall down from heaven and return not again, but water the earth, bringing forth life and giving growth, seed for sowing and bread for eating, so is the word that goes forth from my mouth. It will accomplish that for which I have purposed and prosper and that for which I have sent it. May you continue the work of the sower. May you take this example and not store up, waiting for the right soil to come along, but to act with affection to all the places around you. May the love of God pass with as much grace onto the unexpected soils you encounter. And know that the efforts that have withered, the seed carried to sprout far away. They come along with a harvest that, who knows, might be 30, might be 60, might be a hundredfold. 